Today's scripture is coming from Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 7 verses and 11 to 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for your service today. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Pastor James, for all he has done for this church. And I pray for his coming projects. And I pray for today, for his sermon, that we'll all open our hearts and ears to listen and learn what he has in his sermon. And Lord, your will be done always in our lives and make us whole as it is written in your words. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you, Lord, for all the churches. Amen. And thank you for providing us to be able to worship here in Turkey, Antalya, freely. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Emel. I'm also grateful for Emel's forgiveness because last week I asked her to read scripture and then proceeded to ask someone else, too, to read scripture. <laughs> Four or five years ago, Renata and I had an opportunity to visit Nice, France, when our daughter Anakate was working in the Monaco Yacht Show. And while we were in Nice, Renata and I visited the local now, these French names, 
tend to get me, intimidate me, in fact. Uh, I would say Henry Matisse Museum, but uh, I think in French it's uh, Henri, 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 Matisse. Like Matisse, something like Just forgive me, uh, because an even more difficult one is coming. So we went to the Matisse Museum, and, uh, which, as I was going to say, is one of Renata's favorite artists. And since then, one of my favorite artists has become a contemporary of uh, Matisse, and uh, his name is uh, Georges Rouault. Now, there are a lot of letters in that last name, but I think you only more or less pronounce the first two. <laughs> uh, I would look at it and say Roalt, but uh, I think the French say something like Roal, uh, more or less. Anyway, these two French artists painted in the early 20th century, and Roal in particular gave people a new way to see Jesus. Uh, in fact, Roa was passionate when painting Jesus. He used layer upon layer of vivid colors and bold black lines. And he, uh, in doing so, exhibited uh, a deep desire to help his viewers understand and appreciate Jesus Christ. And it was, a, it was a passion of his. His life, his passion, his resurrection, Roal wanted to illustrate it all, his whole life. And uh, this French artist, by the way, certainly did have a firm belief also in Christ's resurrection because he also painted post-resurrection scenes of Christ. Roal worked diligently and productively as a painter for nearly 60 years. And he began far more paintings than he was able to finish. In fact, at the end of his 87-year-long life, uh, when he knew that he couldn't finish, manage to finish all the paintings that he had started, he proceeded to burn. He burned about 300 of his paintings, uh, which were estimated to have been worth a fortune even back then. And... Uh, his reason for doing so was simply that uh, he knew that he wouldn't be able to finish them. And so I guess he figured, why should they take up my space in my workroom? But even having burned all those paintings, uh, he produced, and most still remain in existence, hundreds upon hundreds of portraits of Christ. And uh, Roald yearned. He yearned to portray Christ in life-transforming ways. He yearned to portray Christ in life-transforming ways. Do we have such a desire, friends, through our lives, through our church? This is the question I was left wondering after reading about Roal. Through Christ, we have received, we might say, a billion euro salvation. But do we give more than about a 10 cent response? Has the reality of Christ's, 
of, of God's sacrifice for us in Christ touched the core of our beings. Not just here, but in our weekday lives. Have we become so moved by God's grace in Christ that we yearn to present him to others in life-transforming ways? These kinds of questions come to mind as I think about Georges Roal and about the St. Paul Union Church and about uh, its future here in Antalya, Turkey. The purpose statement of our organization, uh, or the purpose statement of any organization, is its reason for existence. And the purpose statement of the St. Paul Union Church, and we probably don't review this enough. We did it in church council meeting recently in the pastoral search committee, pastoral search committee uh, recently. But the purpose of the St. Paul Union Church is to glorify and enjoy the one true God, to grow together in Christ-focused faith, to give grateful service to God and to people, and to go forth and share Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. That fourfold statement is why this church exists. And it's good to sometimes take that purpose statement and personalize it. Give it the test of per- per- personalization. In other words, do I glorify and enjoy the one true God when I'm here. That takes intentionality, you know. And it takes real effort during worship to to truly enjoy and to glorify God. Do I really work to grow together with one another in Christ-focused faith? This Revelation study presents a terrific opportunity to do so. Do we, do I, again, if we're personalizing it, give grateful service to God and to people? Or do you just come here and attend, get out of it what you can, and then go your way? And perhaps the most challenging one of all, do you go forth from here ready and willing to share Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. These are important questions for each one of us to face. And the same can and should be done with our vision and mission statements. Our vision statement is posted on the bulletin uh, from week to week, restoring Christ to the Turkish mosaic. That is is not so much our reason for existence, but that's what we are hoping to accomplish. That's what we want to attain. That's our vision. And then our mission statement is how we're going to go about accomplishing that vision. And, And our mission statement is to connect the body of Christ and the people of Turkey. So we aim, you know, the, this land right here, uh, since, since the first century, 
uh, there was a good representation of the body of Christ here. Virtually since the time of Paul, there would have been representation of the body of Christ here, and it would have grown. It, it grew until um, uh, early in the 20th century, when in a period of about 30 years, the church in this region of Anatolia was absolutely decimated. And really not until uh, about 25 years ago uh, did the church again begin to take root and grow where we now are. And since then, it has grown significantly, but I would say to you that we are still only back to about first century uh, proportions between Christians and non-Christians here in the Antalya region. I mean, we have a long way to go proportionally uh, to, to attain to where it used to be. So that's the challenge that we face, and it's well-suited for us. And it's a concise and memorable statement. Why do we exist? Well, we exist for those four, that fourfold purpose statement. But what do we hope to attain? We want to re- restore Christ to the Turkish mosaic. To, and we do that. How? By connecting the body of Christ and people in Turkey. People residing here from all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, people visiting here. Uh, we seek to restore Christ to this to the mosaic of this wonderful land that we've grown to love and appreciate. Well, the reason I share these statements with you today is that they are so easily forgotten. They are so easily forgotten. And when purpose, vision, and mission statements are forgotten, then organizations and members of organizations tend to become self-focused, and self-serving. They tend to make value judgments based on personal tastes and personal expectations and personal feelings. But when believers in Christ and bearers of His Spirit are united in purpose, in vision, and in mission, then you have what I'm calling synergy of grace. Synergy of grace. Supernatural results occur. And the vital local church that results can truly have a transforming influence upon the society of which it is growingly or increasingly a part. Our passage today is perhaps the most descriptive one of an active church in the whole New Testament. In chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, Paul gives a prayerful and a very powerful uh, description of grace and salvation. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he mostly explains uh, ethical results of the saving grace at work in the lives of God's people. We have... uh, 
a key metaphor that Paul, he doesn't introduce it here. He introduces it in chapter 2, verse 10. But here in 4.1, he uses it again. And then in the rest of the chapters of this epistle, this letter, Paul uses it again and again. Uh, but it's covered up by the New International Translation. Uh, it's the metaphor to walk. To walk. And we have it right there in chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to walk. <laughs> but it's hidden. It's, it says live. And the NIV does interpretation for us, you see. And so puts live in there. And in other verses puts do in there in place of walk. But basically Paul is using this very common metaphor of life. Everyone back then walked. And uh, many of us still do today. But uh, he's using that as a metaphor for living, living a life worthy of literally the calling to which we have been called, is what it says there in, in, in the Greek language. And it's, uh, Paul really emphasizes uh, the uh, specificity and the privilege of our calling. He really emphasizes that here, not here only, but also later on in this passage uh, as well. We are uh, incredibly privileged to be called according to uh, God's will and to his saving grace. And then Paul proceeds to describe the responsibilities that accompany that grace. And that is largely what chapters four through six is about. Verses two through three, two and three contain not sentences, but actually phrases, prepositional and participial phrases that explain what it is to walk worthy of the calling that we've received. So uh, what does it mean? To walk worthy of this calling, well, it has to do with uh, humility, gentleness, loving patience, and peaceful unity. These four qualities should mark all of our lives, not just the pastor's life, but all of our lives, but especially the lives, uh, I could say, of us pastors who are examples to the flock, so to speak. Certainly, we should exhibit these qualities uh, without exception. Not that we're going to be perfect. We, too, will fall short at times and will need your forgiveness. But, uh, but I personally take this very seriously. That Part of my reading this year is going to be uh, uh, devotional classics. And uh, humility is one of the qualities that I seek to read more about uh, through the writings of Benedict of Nursia, who lived in the 6th century, and also Jeremy Taylor, who lived in the 17th century. They wrote a lot about humility. And I'm sure I have a lot that I can learn about this um, vitally important virtue that Paul mentions first, because it is foundational. 
Humility is the foundational grace from which all other virtues grow. And specifically, humility refers to lowliness of mind. It's, it has to do with our thoughts and how we view others with regard to our thoughts, how we think about them. And those in the Greek world who were expected to have lowliness of mind were slaves and prisoners. And so it was really a looked down upon trait in the Greek world. But Paul calls us to exhibit this trait. Not only does he do that, but he, he makes this connection between prisoners and often the term slave as well, and he uses it to apply to himself. Paul, at the start of verse 1 of this chapter, says, Paul, uh, as a prisoner for the Lord, and actually it's not for the Lord, it's as a prisoner in the Lord in Greek. In other words, Paul is saying that he is a captive in Christ. It goes along with his speaking about being in Christ. He's a prisoner in the Lord. Gentleness is the opposite of harshness. Gentleness is the opposite of harshness. And gentleness is, we might say, a forgotten virtue in our day and age. By and large, this virtue is not necessarily valued. But it is a Christ-like virtue. And it is a virtue to which all of us are called, particularly as we interact with one another and with other people. And perhaps especially as we interact with our family members. Sometimes it's most tempting for us to not be gentle toward them, but perhaps they are above all those with whom we should exercise gentleness. To be patient, bearing with one another in love, is literally putting up with one another in love. Uh, I don't know, that says something to me, putting it that way, how it's literally written. Sometimes we need to really, uh, what shall I say, force ourselves even to put up with one another in love. That phrase in love, by the way, uh, are bookends in this chapter, both in chapter verse 2 and down in verse uh, 11, I believe it is, or no, it's 13, we have uh, in love, and they, they kind of bookend Paul's thought here in this passage. And so uh, putting up with each other in love, according to John Chrysostom, whom Mark spoke about last week, to be patient, to put up with one another in love is, according to Chrysostom, Sorry, I just lost it. Um, It is to have a soul that is deep and wide, literally big-souled. To have a deep and wide soul, that is S-O-U-L, toward other people. That's being willing to put up with them in love. That is to say, you and I, 
need to value each other so much that we will not give up on one another. Whenever you talk about love, you're talking about not a feeling in Scripture, but a, but a volition, a will. We need to will not to give up on one another. Verse 3 is literally, uh, be zealous and eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in, not through, but in the bond of peace. That word bond there refers to literally the bond of prisoners and slaves. Again, Paul uses this blend of terms so often. He's talking about peace, and yet he's talking about being bonded, being bound uh, in peace. And uh, he's talking about this wonderful grace in which we have tremendous freedom. And yet, you know, we're prisoners, as it were, in this grace. And uh, it's sometimes hard to get our minds around uh, these this uh, almost clashing of metaphors that Paul does intentionally. And then after Paul has us uh, each look at ourselves individually and searchingly in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter, then he gives us in verses 4 through 6 uh, a dose of ancient liturgy. Um, Liturgy regarding our unity in Christ. And this is probably liturgy that he himself probably put together for the churches that he founded. However, it may possibly have predated Paul. And only because of time, uh, I'm not going to take you through that very interesting um, liturgy or creed um, point by point, but it, uh, it bespeaks uh, the kind of the connection points of our unity. And then in verse 7, we read, we read this, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Literally, that word is measured it. It's it's as it's been measured out to us. It's an important word because three times in this passage, Paul uses that verb to measure. And really the point is that each of us have been given a measure of grace and that by each of us exercising that measure of grace in the body of Christ, only that way is the fullness of grace reached that God desires for his church. In other words, the pastor can't do it all. And in fact, the lion's share is on you people. It's on the congregation when it comes to exercising God's grace. And by the way, the term grace here is used differently than it's been used in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. Paul uses that term grace just over a hundred times in all of his writings and only about 15% of the times is how he uses it here. Here he refers not to saving grace, but he refers to uh, 
the ministry of grace. The ministry of grace at work in the church through our lives. And God gives to each one of us a measure of this grace to use for the good of the body. And without you exercising your measure of grace, there is a lack. There is a lack in what would otherwise be the fullness of God's grace at work in the St. Paul Union Church or in the wider church of Antalya. So each person's measure of grace is is vitally important. And it's this understanding of grace uh, of, for ministry. It's in this sense that I'm talking about a synergy of grace. A synergy of grace. And then in verses 11 through 16, Paul goes on to really elaborate upon this synergy of grace or concert of grace or call it what you will, this collaboration of grace or cooperation of grace. But it's really a spirit-directed orchestration of this kind of grace at work in the body of Christ. Verses 11 through 16, believe it or not, constitutes one long sentence in the Greek. Paul often did this. Huge sentences. And... uh, and here again, he does that. And in fact, this sentence has really two different subjects. Uh, the first subject is the ministry of grace that takes place in the body of Christ. And the second subject that crops up is the maturity that this ministry over time achieves. And one extremely important point in these verses is that the gifts referred to are people. People like you. It's people who are the gifts of which he speaks. These verses are not primarily about uh, pastors. Let me stress this once again. Those four first century offices mentioned uh, in... uh, which verse is that? Yes, in 11. These really, uh, not even all scholars agree as to what these offices were exactly. And uh, there's, it's, it's, it'd be quite uh, dangerous to just figure that these offices can be transferred to the 21st century um, without some major uh, interpretive work going on. But uh, what's clear is that all of these offices were involved in proclaiming and explaining the gospel and God's word in general. And that is the primary purpose of us pastors. Explaining and uh, proclaiming the relevance of God's word for our lives in the 21st century. And believe me, that is, a, that is a tremendous challenge because we're not in the first century where 
there's this Pax Romana and kind of a common culture and language that we can benefit from. We're dealing with ancient languages and ancient cultures and getting at the meaning behind certain passages, especially from the Old Testament, is a tremendous challenge. That is really the primary purpose of us pastors, to explain the gospel. And by the way, there is no greater, broader, more complex topic on earth than the gospel of God. You know, we think it's so simple, but it's so deep. It's so complex. There is so much to it. There is so much unexplored territory when it comes to the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. And so that really is the calling of us pastors to do our best to understand that and to explain it for you people and to prepare God's people for works of service. The works of service, the many ministries of grace in this church are largely for you to do. For you to do. I pray, I plead to God for a new St. Paul Union Church pastor who will prepare you and in no way hinder or thwart you from carrying on a thriving, flourishing, and God-honoring synergy of grace. Amen? I'm sorry I have to close. These last six verses are so rich, and I wish I had time to address them more fully. But, uh, but I encourage you, dear friends, to read and reread and meditate upon these verses in the coming days and weeks because they really are crucial to understand and to appreciate uh, in the process of calling a new pastor or pastoral team for the St. Paul Union Church. Uh, they really are crucial to understand. We desperately need to develop a far greater synergy of grace so that the pastor or pastors do not dominate the ministry at the St. Paul Union Church. And I say regarding myself, I did that far too much. And you really need a pastor who takes seriously the preparing God's people for works of service and then the freeing up of those people to carry on that work. Toward the end of his life, Georges Roald was asked why he was so obsessed with painting Jesus. And his answer was this, my life's goal is to paint a portrait of Christ so movingly that whoever looks on it will be immediately converted. Likewise, dear brothers and sisters in God's family of grace, may the goal of St. Paul Union Church be to present a mosaic of Christ that is so moving 
that those who look upon it are drawn to him and transformed by his grace. Amen. Let us pray. From the cowardice that shrinks from new truths, from the laziness that is content with half-truths, and from the arrogance that thinks it knows all truth, O God of truth, deliver us. And now, Father, as we prepare our tithes and our offerings to give them to you as expressions of our love, we ask, O Lord, that you would meet not just our needs, but the needs of people everywhere in this coming year. Lord, we're thankful that you are a God of love and that you are a God who is in control. And Lord, we pray that you'll take our gifts of thanks and love to you today and that you will multiply their effect as they go into your service. May they accomplish much, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen.